real quick, what's the biggest problem in developing for Internet Explorer? Internet Explorer? Only one? People use it. You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 35. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. But first, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Over 550,000 developers have already deployed to their cloud. You too can deploy your own droplet in 55 seconds. Their options start at $5 per month, and you only pay for the time used when your droplet is live. Use the offer Coding Blocks and get a $10 credit towards your new DigitalOcean account. All right, and so with that, let's get into the podcast news. What? All right, we're done. Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> no. Yeah. I uh, guess uh, we, we, his name Pano. He'll be happy. We're yeah. done. Sorry, I was watching a Fallout trailer. Oh, <laughs> uh, we we really only have a couple things this week or this episode. Um, first is Jeff Bellina wrote us wrote us about our or I guess my tip that I had on episode thirty three, where I discussed SP Who two, and he actually wrote in and said, "Hey, there's something even cooler, and it is called SP Who SP underscore Who is active." he says it's everything that you love about SPHU2 and DBCC input buffer combined with being able to, to show plan for the running SQL SPIDs. So that's pretty cool. He did leave a couple of links that we'll put down here in the show notes. And he also mentions as well that there is a free tool from, oh man, I've, I've even used this company before, SQL Century, and it's called Plan Explorer. And it allows you to see like the IO and, and the CPU for each of those statements as well. So very much appreciate the uh, feedback. We're, we're going to leave it in the show notes and people can go check that out. And it, I, I feel I, though, like since he didn't comment at all on the kill tip, then he didn't, he must've like <laughs> stopped. As soon as you said your thing, he was like, Oh, that's it. I've heard, I've heard the entire show and he stopped listening. Cause otherwise he would have definitely had some tips on the kill spit. Yeah. There's, I mean, without that, there's nothing. So, yeah, very much appreciated. That That's a very cool tip. And I haven't gotten to play with it yet. Um, I got this email today, so I'm going to – I'll definitely be trying that out here pretty soon. And then the other one was we got asked a question on Twitter from Rebecca, and she basically asked, you know, hey, I, I've been spending time trying to learn this one language, and now I'm wondering should I stay learning this one language or should I switch over to Java or C Sharp? Or it, like how do I know what this to do? This seems like a song. Should I stay or should I go? Hey, you want to break out? Oh, sorry. Um, so I, I did write her back a fairly lengthy reply, and and I, I'd love to hear what you guys think too. So I told her I was like, look, my first thing would be is I'm not going and learning any kind of random language just for fun. Like if I'm doing it, I'm trying to apply it towards you know either work that I can do for a company or work that I can do for myself that can make some money or, or you know, like there's usually a, a goal behind it. And so I told her, I was like, look, you know, if you can go and look at the jobs in your area and find out, Hey, is there a lot of jobs for what you're spending your time learning? Then I think you just stick with that 
learn it well, get familiar with it. And then later on, if you need to transition to something else, once you know the fundamentals of any particular programming language, the specifics change a little bit from language to language. But overall, just knowing how the pieces come together, how they operate, you know, the methods that you use, the patterns, those transfer pretty easily from one language to another. So my recommendation was, hey, if there are jobs in your market for what you're already learning, then stick with that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I always thought it'd be cool to know one static, one scripting, and one functional language really well, just because, you know, you're pretty well-rounded at that point. You've got your bases pretty well covered. But um, that was a couple of years ago that I thought of that. So now I have to add and JavaScript because <laughs> uh, everyone needs to know JavaScript now for some reason. I actually think what she was learning <laughs> that, that was can't cover your scripting. Uh, or do you mean like a shell scripting? Shell scripting. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what, what are you, what are your thoughts outlaw? Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, I felt like we, we kind of talked about this. We, we have an episode back about like talking about like, you know, I think it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Something like that. That was the episode name. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you can't, you, you can't avoid JavaScript. So like Joe said, that's definitely got to be on the list. Um, I liked, I liked the added, uh, you know, contextual uh, bit that you put in there about like, well, you know, see what's going on in your area, right? And what your demand is. But then I also thought, well, that could really like, unfortunately, maybe really sway, you know, I don't know. I guess depending on like the workforce that's that's around you, it may heavily gear towards a language that maybe you honestly don't want to be a part of. And that's fair too, right? right? Yeah. But that but that could just be the demand in your area. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of ADA around here. Really? Yeah, I guess maybe the defense contractors like Lockheed and whatnot. I think he meant ABBA. <laughs> I mean, it's, ABBA's more popular. It's kind of weird though. Like, I mean, even. Even thinking about that, like if your area is, let's say, like, I don't know. I would never suggest somebody go to some just really small language. I mean, people will pick those up in their jobs if they have to. But, like, I don't know. I guess I would never try and and stick yourself into a corner to where you know the only place you're ever going to be able to work is this one little spot in downtown area that's going to be a two-hour commute for you or something like that. So I, I don't know. It's it's a really That's the one danger about staying towards topic, or, you know, any kind of technology that's specific to your job that, you know, that, you, yeah, you'll be able to use it in your day-to-day, but there's that risk that you take to where, like, your the company may not be moving with the times. Right. And therefore, you fall behind. So, yeah, you may be, like, really up on whatever technology stack they're using, but... That's not necessarily in your best interest. Yeah, in her case, she was actually, I think she said that she was going and taking classes on learning this one particular one. And she wanted to know, hey, is this what I should be doing? And it was Node in Python. It, yeah, it was Node in Python. Let's see. And it's. Sorry, I, I moved away from the mic there, James. So I don't know. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I like, I guess my thing is try not to be. ADD, like most of us developers are, to where you start something and you're like, you know, five minutes in, you're like, well, there's something shiny over there. Let me try that, right? Like, spend some time and get more intimately familiar with whatever you're diving into. 
And then that way you actually really start to understand how things work. And then when you move into something else, like I said, those patterns typically transfer from language to language. So I don't know. That, that's my take on it. Hopefully, you know, that'll help some of you others out there who are in the same situation. I mean, we've got we got a buddy who loves uh, Erlang and Haskell, right? And, and it's funny because I'm like, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool, but you're not going to get me to touch it. You know, like... Well, I thought you were going to mention another friend of ours who's crazy about Go. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. He, he's a big fan of Go. Yep. So, so, although I will mention, um, like, uh, I got really into Ruby a couple a long time ago now. Uh, and one thing about it is uh, whenever you do pick up a language, uh, especially if it's really different from the ones that you've worked with, you almost always end up bringing something back. So Ruby is so heavy into the blocks, procs, and lambdas that just kind of... Um, it, you know, it's it's really helped me understand uh, the link stuff in like C sharp a lot better. Hmm. That's cool, it, but you know, so the language you mentioned though is one of the most popular ones out there. Like I would almost say for anybody that's trying to learn something, go Google a hey, what are the top ten programming languages or the top ten paying programming languages or something like that. And then that way you can at least see what the popularity index is, right? And then you know that if you're getting one of those top five, top ten, you're in pretty good shape. Like, yep. I, well, yeah, you may be covered. You're, you're going to be in a con, in a competitive market, right? So you're going to have to deal with that if you're in those top top ones. Um, yeah, and then like you can't even say that you'd be in good shape because like because it's so competitive, then financially it's going to be affected too. So I don't know. Those obscure ones might actually pay more. Well, the obscure right? ones like, will, but you'll be stuck in I, one I'm place. To think of. Uh, but like Ruby was one of the top paying ones, right? And so here's the thing. Well, Stack Overflow, I think we talked about this once before. Didn't Stack Overflow have a poll on this? Yeah, somebody did. But here's the thing. like, And I'm not trying to be uh, – I've interviewed a lot of people over time, and it's amazing the amount of people who say they know everything and don't know much. So even if it's a competitive market, as long as you are somebody that is going to take an interview or something like that really seriously – and you study up and you polish up, I don't really see that being a problem. And especially if you're somebody trying to get in at a junior level or even an entry level type thing, it's a great way to get in the door and get a ton of experience. But I mean, personally, I would stick with one more popular languages just just for the reason that, you know, there's going to be positions around. Yeah, so this is a Stack Overflow's 2015 developer survey and we can have a link in the show notes for this as well but uh javascript anyone care to take give me a number on javascript because we've all said it so we know it's in there like what kind of number like salary a or percentage position? number like no in terms of popularity give me a percentage of where you think javascript ranks i'm gonna say number two uh, that's your percentage oh percentage? you said where it ranks I, it's one of the most popular languages and I'm asking you to give me a percentage. Like what percent of popularity do you think JavaScript is? On Stack Overflow? I'm going to say... 40. Okay, Joe says 40% popularity according to the... Uh, 80. Stack Overflow technology survey or developer survey and Alan says 80. So it was 54.4% was the popularity. Wow. Uh, for that and that's actually down from 2014 where it was 58.9 and then let's see let's see if you guys can guess the, it's the, the highest one. Oh man are you already looking at it you yeah. cheater yeah, of course how I am. am i gonna play this game no, there's no game anymore oh my god <laughs> 
All right. The number two one surprises me, though. Joe, are you looking at it? Don't look at it. You're looking at it. Number two for questions, I am going to say sequel. Yes, sir. Oh, my God. Number three. You're (laughs) cheating. All right. So, fine. Sequel, sequel, then Java, then C Sharp, and then PHP. So, yeah. I mean, like I said, pretty much anything in this list right here. You you can't go wrong with. So we will we will definitely have a link in the show notes. Um, and you know if you stick with any one of these, you're in pretty good shape. And JavaScript because it's now client side, server side, and any other side that exists, it's probably not a bad one to pick up. So yeah, um, you know they go on to talk about like the most loved, the most dreaded, the most wanted. If if you've never seen the Stack Overflow uh, developer survey, there's definitely. Uh, you know, I, there's definitely some interesting little nuggets of uh, information in there. Like favorite favorite text editor. Just don't even look. Just guess. Vim. Vim. Notepad. Or Notepad. Emacs. Okay. Is it gonna be? Emacs? I'm gonna have to give Joe as being the closest, but it's really Notepad plus plus. Oh, I was love the Notepad winner. plus plus. Yeah, Vim. Vim was actually a. Uh, uh, Number four, well, it was number three in terms of popularity, but there was this other category that actually had more percentage. But you know, that's not one particular thing. So we'll give we'll give you Vim for number three. Yeah. yeah. So. No one likes Vim though. No one like enjoys it. But hey, like <laughs> you're about to get blasted. <laughs> the majority of people are on my side with uh, their IDE. They like the dark theme, so I feel like. Um, I've been redeemed a little bit there. I'm a fan. All right, this poll is total crap. Although, <laughs> although tabs won out over spaces. Yes, so sir. Woo. I feel like. Wait, what? I do not like. What spaces. were we talking about? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were. I think we were trying to answer Rebecca's question, and then I sidetracked us. Yep. So, oh man, news section so long now. <laughs> all right. So that's actually it. That was all of our news. So Yeah, well, uh, get into the topic then. Um, this is going to be part three in our discussion on the 12-factor app. And uh, just kind of a little refresher, uh, the 12-factor methodology is uh, basically for writing applications where the end goal is software as a service, uh, but it also applies to other types of applications that you might be working on. And it grew out of lessons learned among people that have built uh, you know, a bunch of applications, but basically from Heroku. And uh, this time we're going to be talking about port binding, concurrency, and disposability. All right, we're done. Yep. <laughs> so uh, first one up. Wow. Is, so uh, we're already talked about all that. I'm still on the Stack Overflow developer survey. Yeah. I, yeah, no, you guys are already talked about the whole it, show. Well, we've gotten into the weird ones now, so it's a little bit harder to explain some of these items. So uh, I hope we hope you'll bear with us. But yeah. the, the first one is port binding. You want to take a stab, Alan? I, I mean, I will. This one of the three, this one ends up being about the shortest after you kind of understand what they're talking about. So when they say port binding, essentially what it what it boils down to is you don't, in your app, you don't basically rely on the fact that you're going to have anything on your server that's going to exist for you. If you want something that your app relies on, be it an HTTP server or something like that, you're gonna you're going to bundle that in your app, and then you're going to bind to a particular port that you're going to listen on. So, it almost sounds counterintuitive to some of the other ones that you know when we talked about like dependencies. 
right? Like this, like this one specifically says that the 12 factor app is completely self-contained and they specifically call out bringing in like an Apache or a Tomcat or something. And you're like, yeah, Jetty. Well, wait a minute. Like, wouldn't you ingest like, and you wouldn't that be injected? It, if it was one of the services, right? Like, cause they had talked about email and, and that kind of thing previously. So mm-hmm. yeah, this one kind of straddles the line a little bit. Um, you know, it, it makes sense though. I mean, it, it really does make sense. If you want to be able to scale up servers quickly, you know, bundling in whatever you absolutely need and, and being able to make it listen on a port means that you can scale this thing out anywhere. You don't have to rely on an OS version or anything like that. It brings with it what it needs. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, to, to me, the uh, the most interesting thing here is what it's not doing. And, and that's kind of like the old school. Like when I started web programming, you know, you would have like Apache set up and rather than you worrying about scalability, it was more about, um, you know, adding a new website. So you would go in there, you add a new virtual host or you go into IIS, you'd right click and create a new website. And um, that was more of the focus was kind of how to, to run more stuff off of one server and vertically scaling. And now this is really the, the total opposite of that where they're wanting to break out everything and they're actually you know, dissuading people from using things like uh, Apache and IIS, which were, I mean, those were the, the mainstays for what feels like hundreds of years. Yeah, well, I don't necessarily feel like it's going away from Apache, that they're talking about necessarily going away from Apache, but it definitely feels like, like some of this, I'm assuming that some of this they're, they're implying that you know you would okay so like in the last episode we talked about the build release run process right and so i would assume that they're suggesting that some of that bundling for like bringing in apache or a tomcat or something like that might happen during that that uh release stage or or the build stage rather um not necessarily I don't know. Am I saying that right? Because then... Yeah. I understand what you're saying. But I, I feel like um, the way things are going now, like even with ASP.NET you know, 5, the, like they're trying to get uh, down to like smaller and smaller web services. So rather than having this big battleship that's like, you know, HTTP, PD or Apache, which, uh, you know, can support multiple hosts and, you know, can do all sorts of stuff. And that's all sorts of security. And I mean, just tons of the config files are crazy for Apache. It's it's getting down to where you're running these little things like, um, you know, Twisted or a Node web server um, or, you know, whatever uh, ASP calls it. But uh, things are just, it's just a tide change, I guess. It's just different. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. Yeah, but I, I guess like one of the things that kind of tripped me up though is you'd mentioned the the vertical scaling and whatnot. And, and I kind of, maybe because I was taking into consideration the previous chapters here that I was kind of thinking, well, you could still have multiple instances of it and then the port be decided based on, you know, like an environment variable or a configuration or something like that. Right. So you could still, you know, have, have multiple versions of it running side by side. Right. Right. Yeah. It's definitely possible. Something like Apache, just, uh, just kind of interesting to me that they're kind of pushing these smaller libraries um i forget the ruby ones but like i, I remember when I, I first started like looking at ruby on rails um they, they were using like mongrel and fast http at the time and i was blown away it's like why wouldn't you just use apache but uh it just uh things are changing and that was like 10 years ago now but still it, feels new to me uh, it, it definitely feels like it plays along with the idea of the microservice too yep yeah there's no question that's part of it but 
but this is where too like um maybe maybe I'm trying to remember back to the first six. I think this is where like the twelve factor app starts to specifically deviate away where like some of these chapters are very specific to web deployment so or web applications because yeah we talked about in the previous chapters that um that they weren't you know really specific to web app like one of them was configuration based that we talked about right like you know the or dependency i mean there were just good things in there that really applied to any kind of development that you were doing whether it be like you know an ios app or an android app or you know, even a, like a, you know, a simple hello world app, you know, there were code base things that were, that we discussed about that had nothing to do necessarily with a web-based app. But now we're starting to get into the chapters where it's getting really specific to networked applications. Network, but not necessarily web, because you could create like some sort of app that, that you listen on a, on a port and, you know, maybe it's taking an EDI information or something like that. Right. Well, so. they specifically in this chapter, in this section here, they specifically call out HTTP is not the only service that can right. be exported right. by port binding. Yeah. So, I mean, basically anything that you're doing, even if you wrote a database engine, right. That that's going to listen on a port. If you have something, I mean, th- there's tons of things. So the important thing here though, is that like the main th- takeaway that I got from this chapter was that what they're striving for is that you should your application should just be listening in on some port that could be configured, you know, you, you don't care what the actual port number is. Right. It may be configured on on, you know, the client side. Um, but or, you know, client being like whoever does the installation. Um, but you're gonna listen in on some port and you're gonna respond on some port. And so that's the service that your application is going to provide. And you right? bundled it. And, and your, yeah, your things are bundled together to make that happen. And you're not, you know, expecting that your code is going to be um, statically, you know, use static binding, for example, to be included into another project, right? Or, or you know, I guess even dynamic binding. Instead, you're providing a service, which is consistent with the previous chapters that we've talked about so far. Yep. And then one of the other cool things that they talk about here is the fact that when you follow this particular approach here, that means your app can also become a backing service for another app because your app could basically then be something that can be bound to a port that the other thing is talking to. So um, this is kind of a way to be able to chain additional things together. Yep. And, you know, uh, actually one thing uh, I used to shell out for all the time was uh, image magic. So it was basically like a little, you know, Linux utility for um, resizing images um, so I, that was something I used to always have to shell out on. And now, you know, reading this, like it makes sense that I would write some sort of wrapper that would run, you know, basically a service under a port that would handle that. And then, um, you know, I could end up breaking that off into a separate box or something. And it doesn't make sense that my web application would be running this, you know, potentially CPU intensive operation. You know, it, like, it should be able to break that off to another server if I need to. So let's, you know, we've, we've mentioned the clearly tech article, um, many times here. Um, I'd play a game with you guys, but you've probably already read ahead to figure out like which one it's going to be. It's <laughs> all right. Probably. Well, I guess we can still answer, uh, what we you think know, it should yeah, be. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not hurt a little bit by that last one when I wanted to play with the stack overflow report. <laughs> it Thanks. did take me a while to find it on the page though. If that's um, any yeah, consolation. It's not, yeah. surely not. <laughs> Uh, I would rate this one as being uh, kind of low on importance. I, you know, 
I would go more medium only from the scalability factor. Yeah. Um, you know, reading specifically from that clearly tech article, they have it rated as a medium and they say that, uh, most framework, most runtime frameworks are going to give this to you for free. So again, if we were to take this out of the Heroku environment and put it into like something else, right? Like a IIS app, as an example, um, you know, you're going to set up the port that your app's going to listen to, um, you know, when you configure your IIS application, right? But the one thing that you're not doing in that example is bundling IIS. And this is where, like, some of these, like, starting with this chapter two, it's also going to get kind of specific to certain types of um, developed applications, right? Like, because you don't bundle IIS in with your .NET application or, you know, web application, then it kind of breaks this port binding chapter because you're not including it. Although with the later versions of .NET, you might be doing this pretty soon, right? Yep. Um, because you're not going to be including IIS though. No, not IIS, but the actual core runtime that you could put But what I'm out. saying though is that like they specifically talk about bundling in your Apache HTTPD. Right. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, it starts to get kind of this. These, these, it's very this chapter and the next two start to get specific. Like you can kind of see where their mindset was, but you know, taking you know, abstracting some of that away. There's still good fundamentals here, even though it might not you know, be applicable to everything. And that's, and that's the right. point I'm trying to make with I, the IIS example. Right. So the next one up is. Oh wait, 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 wait. What did they say the uh, medium rating was for? Like what reason they give behind it? Oh, I said that because uh, most runtime frameworks will give this to you for free. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. And that's where I brought up the IIS example, right? Like you're going to do that configuration there. Yep. Right. Okay. So stepping into the next one, chapter, what is this, eight? Yeah. Uh, or part eight is concurrency. And I actually like this one. It it's It feels, it, we'll get into it here in a second, but but this one kind of makes sense. So the whole point is to be able to scale out via a process model. And right, horizontally. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, we've all got some thoughts on this because this is where it all started to feel very Linuxy to me. Um, but, you know, we, we'll talk about it here in a minute. So what they say is processes are first-class citizens in the 12-factor app. And by that, what they mean is the app has control over the various process types that exist and then assigning work to those process types. And some of the examples they gave is you might have a web process that you would, you know, handle any kind of HTTP traffic or anything with. And then you might have a worker process that would handle any kind of long running task. Like Joe brought up like an image processing thing before. Like, so you would assign these tasks out to these different process types. I f- yep. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, going to say, um, it, it was starting to read on this, but you're going to see a lot of stuff about like PID files and stuff like that. And I've been working in Windows environments for a while, so it was kind of a trip down memory lane. Um, but yeah, I definitely think scaling horizontally uh, is you know definitely a, kind of a web notion or a cloud notion, but uh, it's just good, good practice. And I think like it's kind of rare to work on apps now that don't have some sort of web component to them. But was it just me though? I, and 
Yeah, I don't know when you guys read this if you what your interpretation was on it, but it almost felt like, well, now we're so much of this is talking about you can see this direction that they're going. And I just mentioned about the microservices, right? And there's so many of these chapters that are kind of going towards that route. And that's the way this concurrency part feels. But yet at the same time, this one almost sounds like they're talking about like all of these individual processes are all bundled in as one thing. And then it's like, well, then you just broke that microservice architecture, right? Well, kind of, except for, so some of the key points that they made on it was, not only do you need to be able to task out your processes to different or task out your work to different process types, but you need to be able to, to not just do it on the same machine. You need to be able to do it across multiple machines. So that goes back with the microservices thing you're talking about. But what is interesting here is unlike in a lot of places in the 12 factor thing is they say that you need to leverage the OS's um, ability to do the processes or some sort of package that's already on the OS. And I think they called out um, Foreman was one and what was the Upstart. Other? Upstart was the other. So they say leverage those. Don't try and handle the processes yourself. And, and the Foreman was also, also a great example too because like I was reading up on some of that documentation too. And that's where it made me, it, it even brought this, this thought that, okay, well, you're describing a monolithic application at this point. It feels like um, right. even reading the form and stuff, because you know, they were talking about like, well, I'll have a, I'll have a worker process to do th- that. They'll handle processes off of this queue. My web process will handle this stuff. And it's like, uh, as I was reading, I'm like, well, why would those, why sh- shouldn't those each be independent pieces that right. are, that are, you know, one's a backing service to the other, right? Like shouldn't yeah. the worker process be, a backing service to the web process and the web process doesn't care. Like, you know, as a developer, why, why should I have to care how many of these things I'm going to spin up? Right. Like, you know, I, I don't, I just trust that they're there. And then the actual spinning up of that should be handled you know, by the server or whatever. Yeah. Like a runtime decision. Yeah. And, and um, the examples that they gave with Foreman, it definitely spins up, um, you know, processes per application instance. So if you had, you know, 10 applications running on the server, then you're going to have, you know, 10 of these other processes that are associated with it, which is totally the, you know, the opposite of scalability. You should be able to scale those independently. So I totally get where you're going out law and I, I agree. And yeah, it's kind of strange, but I don't think there's so much hammering on Foreman. I think that was just kind of an example of a tool. Oh, I don't mean to hammer on it by any means. Oh, no, I didn't mean you. I just meant like they, they weren't like laser focusing in on Foreman specifically. Um, it's just kind of a strange tangent and doesn't really line up with the rest of their kind of methodology, I think. Yeah, well, even in there, even in there's a, a diagram there where they talk about the scale going up and the, and the workload diversity going across, right? And so on your, I always get the X and Y, X is going to the right. Yes. So, okay, sorry. So, in the, the that you know your X um, is your workload diversity, right? And so in that frame, you have uh, web, worker, and clock in their diagram. And then on your Y axis, you have scaling. So for each web, you might have you know maybe you have two web processes running, and you have four worker processes running. So you're scaling up like that, right? And and they're talking about doing this on the same box, but again, that's where it was like, well, you know. Why, why do I care? You know, why, why do I have to manage that? Like, it feels like if, if I have to have one application that is configuring how many of each one of these things, then I think I've done something wrong. If, if they're that tightly coupled that I got to do that in a configuration. Yeah. It's weird. If you think about almost from a web art, web architecture 
standpoint, like if you talked about like Elastic Beanstalk or something in AWS, you typically set up things to say, okay, I need to scale at this point, like when CPU utilization hits this or so. And so it seems like there should be something else sitting there other than you writing code to say push these. Well, that's why this one yeah. confused me so much. Yeah. And, and you know, I really, I'm not a harp on this one, but this one really was kind of confusing to me in reading it because it really did seem like it contradicted itself and other chapters because they talk about like, okay, so they give this example of the worker process, but it's supposed to be working off of a queue. And they specifically mention that, you know, if it's, you know, any any items that it can't work on at the time, then it'll put the items back to the queue. Like, and when I think of queuing, I definitely think of, you know, horizontally uh, distributed, you know, uh, or scaled applications, right? Right. I'm not thinking about like, I have multiples of these workers processing on the queue that I've manually configured how many of them and they're all in the same box. But then at the same time, one of the examples they mentioned was a, a clock process, much like a, uh, like a, a cron scheduler where that, that process's job is to schedule tasks to run on a certain, you know, schedule. And I'm mm -hmm. like, why? Why? Why would I do that? Right. I, Why wouldn't you let the server or whatever handle that instead of you be trying to coordinate all that, right? Yeah, so so I say that because if anyone's listening and they're they're more familiar with this 12 factor app and this chapter really, you know, made sense to them, I would love to get some feedback on and maybe better understand what they're getting at here. Because it it really seemed you know, e even reading like some of the deeper links that they had in there, it, it seemed like it contradicted itself and the other chapters. Yeah, it, it was a little bizarre. There's no doubt. And like I said, even even if you take, let's get out of the Heroku context here. Like this feels very Linuxy to me because you don't really talk about creating processes in Windows, right? Like a lot of that stuff is managed for you to a certain degree. Um, I guess if you were talking about a schedule or something, you'd set it up in the Windows scheduler. But, but that kind of goes back to what you were talking about before. Like you just let the pieces kind of handle what they're supposed to. This this feels more like okay. Well, I need to, I need to tell Foreman to create this process type, and then I'm going to start assigning some work to it, which is not really something that you do in a lot of Windows type programming, at yep. least not in the stuff I've done, anyways. Uh, one good point I thought they did make was that um, you should try to avoid your process of uh, spinning up and managing threads. Uh, and that's because it's kind of an example of vertically scaling, you know, an example of the image magic resizing. If I opened up a thread to do the resizing every time I got a resize request, then I'm going to be maxing out that box when I should be, you know, looking at trying to do that um, either on a service uh, on that box, you know, to start and then maybe moving that off to a, you know, a dedicated box just for doing that. And so by kind of spinning off these own threads, I'm creating headaches for myself and kind of scaling in the wrong direction. But then again, they also specifically say this is not excluded individual processes from handling their own internal multiplexing. Right. So, but it's <laughs> discouraged. I, I think, I don't know if they said that or if I read that. Yeah. So yeah, they did say it was discouraged. It, it Yeah. I, I wish this one was more clear because I've loved every other part of it so far until I got to this one. And I was like, well, because I really like the whole idea of the micro architecture, like, you know, you know, just building small little pieces of the puzzle and then getting them to all work together. But this one felt like it didn't exactly mesh with that. And maybe, maybe it was, 
my interpretation or maybe it's their wording or maybe it's both. And you know, what's kind of funny too is the name, just like the, what we've talked about, what we've described and the graph that we've looked at and the reading that we've done, I wouldn't really classify that as being related to concurrency. Mm-mm. You know, to me, concurrency is kind of running things, you know, like independently of each other, not quite at the same time, like parallel, but you know. <laughs> well, the, the only part that is, is where they talk about scaling out to other machines on processes right. on those, right? But yeah, I, I'm with you. So, in terms of importance, you've already <laughs> cheated. Why do I even ask? It's already there. Yeah. All right. Fine. Show us. What am I supposed to do? I can't close my eyes. <laughs> you were supposed to close your eyes. All right. So, this one was rated low, and <laughs> I totally agreed with their reasoning on it. Same. And yep. according to Clearly Tech, their reasoning for giving it a low rating was they said, don't worry about this factor until you get pretty deep into scaling considerations trust your chief architect or CTO to raise the red flag if this is going to become an issue for you. And I totally agree with, yeah. with what you're saying. Like That's good advice. Because, you know, going back to, you know, we've mentioned the MVP as well, right, mm-hmm. in the past, in, in past episodes. And, and you know, just get the product out there, yep. right? Like that, that should be your primary concern. Get it out there. So... Yeah. Also, before we leave this one, uh, I did want to mention um, there were a couple of programs that we had uh, mentioned that I wasn't familiar with before. So I kind of looked them up and I just wanted to give you guys a, like a kind of, a, you know, 10,000 foot overview of them. Um, one was Upstart, which is, uh, you know, it, it's it's on Ubuntu. It's on uh, other Linux distributions as well. But um, if you've ever tried to write a process that would, and I think we've all probably done this at some point in our careers, but you write a process to try and see if another process is running or not. It, and it either um, you know monitors and alerts and lets somebody know either via email or something, or it uh, tries to restart the process. Um, that can uh, get hairy quickly, and you quickly start reinventing the wheel. Well, Upstart is basically a, um, a nice, really low-level uh, set of programs for event-based starting, stopping, and monitoring. So it can do really cool stuff like restarting application as soon as it crashes because it's based on an event being thrown rather than um, polling every minute or so often to see if something is still alive. So I thought that was really cool. And the other one we've mentioned a few times was Foreman, uh, Foreman, which is a a Ruby gem for um, basically managing multiple processes. And uh, it's also kind of, you know, heavy on the Linux side and it helps manage um, either your upstart scripts or your init scripts. So you can do stuff like restart my application uh, and it will actually restart all the processes that are associated with that in the format file. So it's a nice way of kind of grouping the things that you need for your app, uh, the, the local things for your app into these logical units. And it kind of handles the OS side of things for keeping those running and starting, stopping, restarting and making sure it all uh, is done gracefully. So I thought those were both really cool and I definitely uh, will be keeping an eye out for those. Yeah. There was, um, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention too, just going back to that whole, um, you know, thing about the low importance for the concurrency one and, you know, the concept of the MVP and just getting it out there. I was actually coincidentally watching a Ted talk today and they were talking about like the, um, key factors for startups and why startups have succeeded and why they hadn't or why some hadn't. And the, Number one reason, at least according to this analysis, was um, the timing. 
you know, just, you know, getting it out there what was the timing right and, and uh, getting it out there at the right time. So, you know, when we talk about the MVP, like sometimes it's just more important to get your idea out in the wild, um, you know, if the timing is right for it. And, you know, that means that you're going to have to, you know, come back and do, you know, refactor and iterate on things later on. Um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect the first time. So. Yeah, I definitely like that. And we'll have uh, some resources we like that mention some nice resources for exactly that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, with that, you know, it's it's that time of show again where you hear me beg as always. And so I'll do it. Um, if you haven't already, we greatly appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. And if you have already, um, you know, feel free to tell a friend. And we would greatly appreciate that too. Or if you've already left a review on one site and you want to leave another on another app, that's okay too. We don't mind <laughs> getting multiple reviews from the same people across different sites. So, uh, yeah, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Infragistics. Experts in data visualization, Infragistics developer tools drive custom app development for any data visualization scenario on any platform. And Report Plus is an enterprise-ready, self-service BI dashboard solution that opens up your enterprise big data for end-user consumption. Head over to Infragistics.com and get your free trial today. All right, so let's get into this last part here. Let's just dispose of it. Right? Disposability. <laughs> that is the last chapter we will be talking about tonight. What would that make it? Chapter 9, I believe. Nine. Yeah. So... Ugh, disposability. We already threw it away. I already lost my notes on it. <laughs> Is that too soon? We should wrap it. Nah. So, so who wants to kick this one off? Uh, me. I'm definitely thinking graceful shutdowns based on the name, but uh, they, the official sentence is maximize robustness with fast startup and graceful shutdown. So I definitely, um, I've been in plenty, 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 many, many, many thousands of hundreds of millions of situations um, where people are terrified to either shut down a server or restart a process because <laughs> they just don't know what the heck is going to happen. And uh, I think yeah. this is aimed at that. We haven't restarted this box since 2003. <laughs> yep. How many times have you been in a company and they're talking about testing their, their uh, disaster recovery plan? And no one wants to do it because they just they have zero confidence that they're going to be able to recover with uh, you know the mail server going down or something. Yeah, and that's a fair enough uh, fear to have. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, when, when they when they talk about disposability here, they're talking about like it being disposable, meaning that it could start up or shut down at a moment's notice, so that if you wanted to spin up a brand new instance of your app server, then it shouldn't be a big deal to do so, right? And and bringing down another one so that everything rolls to the new one shouldn't be a problem. Right. And I feel like yep. we kind of talked about this or at least we hinted on it a little bit and I don't remember which one, which chapter that exactly was. Um, but it definitely feels like we talked about kind of hinted about that. Yeah. And a lot of these are kind of tied together. I'm looking at the list right now. Uh, I definitely know they are absolutely uh, positively into the whole, uh, you know, disposability aspect from like, I should be able to shoot boxes in the head. I should be able to deploy things. I should be able to spin up, spin down, no problem. And everything should be stateless too. So everything should just kind of bounce to the next guy and I should never have any sort of downtime. 
Yeah, and one thing, I, uh, we've probably mentioned these terms before. When you hear elastic scaling, all that means is it's able to grow and, and contract back down, right? Like if you need to to scale out to 100 servers from your usual three, and then, you know, that spike is down, then you can go back to your three servers or whatever. I think you forgot a key word there, though, Did right? I? Automatic. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to manually be pushing a button. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it automatically expands or contracts as needed. Yeah. And and this this portion, this chapter doesn't really call that out. Well, they kind of do when they talk about Beanstalk. But, um, but it's really, uh, but that's kind of where it's going, though. Right, like right. you can see, there's this path that these chapters have been going so far, right? And each one has been kind of building on this central theme and, and you know leading to the next one, right? And so this idea of being able to spin a process up or down quick in order to bring more of them up or more or or to take uh, some of them down, right? You know, going back to your elasticity, uh, you know, you can see where, like that's where they're talking about, right? And you know who does this well? I mean, this is a side note. Netflix. Oh if yeah. You think, oh yeah. If you want, if you really want to think about a company that has to scale, you know, they have their prime time viewing. The and yeah, they're only like forty percent of prime time internet traffic. Right. So, so when you think about it, think if if you were to consider your application, it got as popular as say like a Netflix or something. It's not like you can have somebody sitting in the room saying. Oh no, our 10 servers are 90%. We need to scale up five more. You can't do that. This has to be something that can grow organically and and come back down to size. So that's, that's what this is about. And they did have some really cool tips in here. Like one of the ones was strive to minimize the startup time, which is not something that a lot of people really think about, right? It, It almost goes back to being funny about what Joe said. Like, Oh man, I, I don't really want to hit this restart button because it's going to spin and spin and well, spin. Yep. Yeah, I mean they actually go a little bit step further um, with the crash only design. Yeah, you know, that being was like cool. the final logical conclusion of of where this should go, right? And and in that they they link to a report that seemed a little bit dated um, based off of some of the versions that they were talking about. But you know, in that report, it was specifically calling out. Um, you know, versions of software that, you know, their their startup time on a clean boot, and, you know, here was the average reported startup time versus the startup time on a crash reboot, and yet it was f- the faster time was on the crash reboot than on the clean reboot. Wow. Which was... That's crazy. Unexpected. Yeah, right. I do that on SQL Server and see which one goes faster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so so in here they reference like you know um, again these are all dated, but uh, Windows XP, Red Hot, uh, Red Hat Eight, and JBoss Three. So you know different types of software across the spectrum, right? App servers and OSs and OSs, and then, but yet you know the startup times. So like XP on a clean reboot. A, according to these results was 61 seconds right and on a crash reboot was 48 seconds Hmm. right now you hear me say that and you know instantly like oh my god that's dated because right yeah this world of ssds like we were talking about in the last episode and you know 60 seconds i want to kill myself if it takes that long (laughs) yep but and just the fact that they're talking about xp tells you a lot right 
but it was still some good information in it though uh you know uh about that the crash only approach yeah they also talked about their shutting down should be graceful and by graceful and we've all kind of worked with situations like this before if you shut down something you can't just kill somebody in the middle of a process right the the processes that are running need to finish and then you close out the connections and you exit um and that's how you want it to happen and that's how it should happen and you should do whatever is in your power to make that happen but that means that you have to enforce some things like your requests can't be these super long running requests right they need to be fairly short-lived requests a couple seconds long something like that um so no more uh kill signal nine i think that's the one that just like absolutely shuts it down right now <laughs> well if you do that you should be able to handle that too right well and that's kind of like um you know i i kind of teased it when i said there was like some good things in this crash crash only uh software design because that's kind of where that was going was that, you know, if you look at these systems that, uh, why are they slower on a, on a clean start versus a reboot? And the, the idea was like, well, then why not just write your app to always be able to, to, um, crash to, start. To, to only do a crash start or a crash shutdown, right? Because if you're able to handle that and that's faster, then why have the other code and then have to maintain that code? If it's just slower anyways, right? So just write your application to where it always handles that scenario, you know, and then you, know, you get the benefit of it, right? It was interesting, too, how they handled that in some cases. So one was setting up queues, right? Because the way, they, like, I've, I've done some reading on RabbitMQ and done some listening, but you can set these things up to where if it can't talk to one of the boxes or one of the processes that's supposed to be doing something in the queue, it'll just pop it back to the queue. And then that way something else can pick it up. And that's one of the ways that they talk about handling those kind of situations. Now, that also means, though, that you're going to have to have some sort of way of clean rolling back whatever was happening, right? If something was in the middle of a process and then it died, if it was database transactions, you need to be able to roll that back. So these are all things that you kind of have to build in. And yeah, and I think they even mentioned a few queuing systems where they were talking about, uh, you know, the the queue should be able to there. There's some process that should be able to handle like if the if the worker process hasn't replied back in a certain amount of time or it timed out yep. that the, that the, the job just goes back to the queue for the next worker to get it. The nice thing is, too, now, I, I do want to say, like, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about right here is not necessarily easy code to write because you have to handle a lot of different situations, right? But if you do implement something like a queue, because a lot of queues do have that stuff built in, you can you can almost offset some of your own programming into functionality that's already yep. built in other stacks. So... It's something to consider. I mean, a lot of people don't use queues, but th there's some benefits to be had by leveraging that kind of functionality. Yeah, one example um, I, I think of here is, um, I, I've done this a million times incorrectly, is uh, if I have some sort of process that needs to do a bunch of work, I will query all the things that need to happen in one query, and then I'll loop over and do each one. And the problem is if that's, you know, quits in the middle or something, or if that process gets run, say, twice, then you potentially start doing some of these things twice. And a better approach is to basically 
uh, you know, back to the DB example is you basically, you know, query for one row, do that work for one row, then query another one. Now I can spin two processes off at the same time and it's not a problem. And if it, uh, you know, gets killed in the middle, I can start it back up without worrying about what's going to happen. And basically what I've done there is just reinvented a queue in, you know, a database. Right. I mean, not to harp on the, the crash only design, because I don't want people to think that they should just go and, uh, you know, p- hit the power button on their computer to shut it off instead of doing a graceful shutdown. Um, but, uh, you know, in this chapter, though, they do say that the 12 the factor app is architected to handle unexpected non graceful terminations. So basically, what they're, they're trying to get at is that your application should be robust enough that if I just come and yank the power cord out of the machine, it's not going to destroy anything, right? Like, you know, things will be able to continue on, right? Some other job, some other process will be able to pick up where your that machine left off and that machine, when it comes back up or that process, when it comes back up, isn't going to be in a corrupt state. Like that's ultimately where we're going at with this. Yep. And like yep. I said, that's not exactly easy to do depending on, Depending on what kind of technologies you leverage, if you are leveraging queues, that can greatly simplify what you've got to do. But if you if you've got some sort of process flow, and it all has to happen, you know, A B C D E F G, let's say that you got 30, 30 steps in that, and it something dies on step twenty six, you have to have built something that knows how to, you know, fix kind of where you were in that process. But if each one of right. those steps was another job. That, that was added to the queue, queue then right. that solves your problem. So that that's where the architecture comes back in, right? Yep. yep. So yep. and and it doesn't necessarily have to be the queuing like like Joe mentioned, right? Like so, you know, using the database could be, you know, how how you it's a your, way to do it. Queuing mechanism, and it's a way a lot of people do it, right? I mean, well, the, I don't know if I'd say a lot. And you know, if we're thinking about like in the cloud in the cloud environment that we live in today, right? right? Yeah. You know, there, there's definitely a lot of queuing cloud queuing options out there yep right yeah uh, also i wanted to mention uh you know sql uh data like transactions are easy to do in a most acid compliant databases but when you start talking about uh, external services where um you know writing to this service writing to that service and you know something gets killed along the way that's really tough and yeah like you mentioned the, the queue is a great way of solving that yep i mean that was that's pretty much it for disposability so I can't ask my question because Alan's already cheated. And well, I'm I haven't sure. read the reason. Ah, fine. I can only see the, the rating. Okay. So, this one was rated as a medium, right? You agree or disagree? Is there something between medium and high? Um, it, and it's no, because I've cheated and looked at all of them. Oh. <laughs> but I wish that there were for this uh, because, uh, you know... It's it's really hard to get it perfect, but uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't pay any attention to it. So, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with medium. I agree. This it, like this one's medium for me, not because of how important I think it actually is. Like I I put this up there closer to high, depending on what the system's doing. But the reason why I put it at medium is going back to the MVP thing, because I'm very much into get something that works out there. Right, like get get your product out there, and the problem is you can spend a whole lot of time on this and never even come close to perfecting it. So if you're talking about like trying to break things off into 
cubable work items, bite-sized chunks that you know, and then spinning off a bunch of different worker processes, and that's all. Those worker processes are all code that you got to write. Like, yeah. I can totally understand where you're coming from with that. I, I, I like this one a lot. Like, if if you had unlimited resources, unlimited amount of time, this one would be high for me. But because of the kind of resources and time you would have to put into this to make it perfect, that it's it's definitely closer to medium. I feel like this is an iterate until you get there. Absolutely. Right? But, you know. And the important parts, too, right? Like, the, the, the mission critical parts, you should do this on. You know? Like, if, if your business is, is. Maybe start out with some of the not-so-mission critical ones just to get your, uh, your, get your pattern down. Your pattern down, right? Work out some of the kinks in your in your queuing and worker process system there, right? Whatever whatever platform that is that you're using. But like, so I guess the reason I say this is, let's say that your application is is a, a bank wire transfer, right? And and it's got to do several steps to get your money out of one account into another account. That thing should be perfect. Like if if you have software that does five thousand other things, but that is one of them. That needs to be perfect. But that's actually a great example of what we're talking about here, though, right? Because if that job dies in between, you know, in the middle of that, then the job should just go back on the queue. That's what I'm saying. That's where I'm saying this needs to be implemented perfectly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. So the rest of your app, whatever, right? Like, don't even focus on that. But this part is mission critical because you can't take money out of my account and have it sitting in limbo somewhere just because your server crashed. So I wasn't too crazy about their reasoning, though, here. And, I mean, I kind of get it. But, so, uh, you know, again, clearly text description for why they said a medium is they say depending on how often you are releasing new code and how much you have to scale your app traffic up and down on demand you probably won't have to worry about the startup and shutdown speed but be sure to understand the implications for your app so they're literally they only care about the scale problem as opposed to what the other implications would be yeah so definitely like in your transaction your banking transaction example like they're not addressing the criticality of that unit of work. Right. Right. That, that it's either seen to completion or it's not right. right. Uh, almost like a, uh, a database transaction, you know, commit, you know, on a database transaction. Right. Um, yeah, they're definitely more concerned about, you know, the scalability of your application. And again, you know, if we're thinking cloud, right, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think we disposed of that one. We did. It is gone. Yep. So on to uh, resources we like. Um, We talked about a few things in this episode that uh, remind me of some books that I like. And I just found out that um, one of them, The uh, Phoenix Project, which is, uh, I I don't think I mentioned on this show before, but I'm a big fan of this book, so I wouldn't be that surprised. But it's basically, um, it's fiction, but it's kind of like a DevOpsy kind of romp through like a IT company. And uh, it's a really light read, and it's really fun, and uh, it's you know you're gonna hear stuff that uh, you know you hear in the workplace, like things like Kanban boards and change of management and stuff. But it's actually an uh, entertaining read, and um, it's it's easy to root for the main character. Um, and I just found out that it's on Audible, so that's huge because I hate reading. 
Uh, <laughs> also, another book which is on Audible, also fantastic, is The Lean Startup. Uh, and that's actually a book that I think defined a lot of terms like MVP and a lot of stuff. That And that's where it comes from. It's got a lot of case studies. It's also a surprisingly light read for uh, such a such a... A good book so i would definitely check those out and we'll have links to those in the show notes yeah i mean if you buy both of them you're at under 20 bucks if you do it on kindle so yep um yeah very nice yeah and we'll have links to you know obviously we'll have uh links in there for the 12 factor uh 12 factor.net and clearly tech and i've said this before but you know just in case if this is the first of the 12 factor episodes that you're listening to uh the website for that is uh one two factor dot net um, but everywhere else 12 is spelled out so uh, just be aware of that and uh the previous episodes for the 12 factor app that we've discussed are episodes 32 and 33 and we're almost done so we'll probably have uh, one more episode right and we'll go over those last three and then um, we'll be experts in devops yeah yeah it's gonna be awesome looking forward to it Yep. All right, so let's get into Alan's most favorite part of the show. <laughs> the tip of the week. Of the year. Of the week. All right. And this time it actually is a week. How about that? Is oh, it? So. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> so my tip actually came from something stupid that I did uh, recently. That you just, you're coding, you're in a groove, and you do something, you get an error, and you're like, what? come on and then you realize that you did something stupid and then you have to figure out a way around it so essentially what i was doing is i needed to go through and i needed to replace some things in a list like maybe some properties or some values and if you've ever done a loop over any kind of list and you try to change something in it typically you're going to get barked at because it's going to be like yo you changed the list we can't keep enumerating this list right and so one of the ways that you can handle that is and this goes back to episode two by the way where we talk about boxing and unboxing and dot net we talk about the stack the heap and pointers and all kinds of stuff I, there's a lot of people that probably skip that because it says n dot net this works the same in java as well and anything that's running a virtual machine pretty much that manages a heap and all that but essentially what you can do is if you're looping over that thing Let's say that you want to replace something in that list. You can't change anything on the fly because then it's it's going to say it changed and it doesn't know how to enumerate it anymore. So you can keep track of the changes you want by having like an external list. And then the way that I do it, or did in this case, is I kept a dictionary of the previous object and then the new object that's going to replace it. So I loop over the list. I find out what changes need to happen. I create a new object that basically is a copy of that other object and just change the property I need in it. And then when it's all done, I can just swap out those items because everything that was in that previous list is pointing to some space in the heap. And so all you're doing is telling, okay, point to this new spot that I've got. So you can basically swap out that object. Um, yep. It, I totally did this today, by the way. I was uh, looping through a list, and I was removing items from the list as I was looping through, and then I ended up getting an error because my link didn't line up. And uh, so I ended up creating a list of items to remove, and after I ended up looping, then I went back and removed them. Yeah, it's it's really a nice little pattern, and it, it doesn't take up that much. I mean, now granted, depending on how many objects you're trying to throw in here, it could be a problem, but... Um, yeah, man, it, it's a nice little pattern and it'll keep you from doing anything that'll just crash you 
and it, it's it's a bit of a minor annoyance, but it happens, right? Like you're just thinking, you're like, okay, I need to do this, and then you, oh yeah, that's right, you can't do that. So there ought to be a design pattern for this. So make it make a a list of only the things you want to remove or so modify. Mine was modify. So basically, what I did is I took the item that I needed to change, I put it in a dictionary as whatever that type was. Right, and then I said, "Okay, we'll make a copy of that thing, but now change something and make that the value in this dictionary." And then that way, all I had to do at the very end was say, "Okay, replace this one with this one." Done, and it it automatically just changes the pointers out behind the scenes, and it'll get garbage collected. So it was beautiful, and I happened to be working with J objects because it was all dynamic objects that were created from JSON and all that and C sharp. So it, it was pretty interesting. It was fun. Maybe I'll. Uh, Maybe I'll try and get some sample code together. Who knows? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm very familiar with that kind of pattern of doing things, and it's not natural to me, but it's something I keep trying to do. Where basically I try not to modify any of my, you know, kind of inputs. So like I'm always trying to basically do what you're talking about, where I, you know, have a new copy, I do my work there, and then I swap them at the last second. That's it. Yeah, and, and it's it like works because faux functional. It is yeah. kind of yeah, because it's, it's all not immutable. functional, right? But yet, you want it to be like functional programming by not you know changing the the original source. I mean, the beauty is if you I'm going to create a whole new programming paradigm called faux functional. <laughs> I mean, the beauty is if you actually understand how the heap works and all that, and they're all pointers, it makes perfect sense, right? Because now it's just pointing to that new object instead of the other one. I'm like, going to register fo functional. There you go. Dot. Wait, wouldn't it be f e a u x no, that'd be. Functional. I was trying to make a or joke. F-A, no, F A U X. Yeah, I was trying to make a joke, but your bad spelling ruined it. Yes, it was. All, <laughs> it might have enhanced it. Yep. So that's well, because I was going to left. I was going to leave it up to interpretation what the F O <laughs> was. Hmm. And uh, was I also think it makes things more uh, refactorable because you can kind of copy and paste lines around a, a bit more without worrying about you know the state of individual variables. That's cool, man. I, I'm actually glad somebody else had this problem where they were coding and they're like, "Oh, yeah, that's right. I can't do that." Yeah, yeah literally today, and it, I, it never comes up, but it did today. <laughs> awesome. Uh, speaking of things that never comes up, I guess we're uh, up to my tip, <laughs> and I feel like there should be a name for this too. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that uh, nobody really does anymore because, like, every language has nice ways of uh, iterating through collections now. But if you're messing around with any sort of like game programming or um, just multi-dimensional arrays for some reason. Um, one kind of trick that uh, is kind of neat that um, if you're, let's say we're um, iterating through uh, a, a two-dimensional array for a maze, like a Pac-Man maze or something, and um, you know, your first inclination is usually to go um, X then Y, probably a byproduct of you know using English and Cartesian coordinates. We always say X and Y, we list the X first and then the Y, but it's actually more efficient to loop based on the Ys first. And uh, so what I'm talking about is we're doing two for loops uh, for, you know, X equals zero, X less than length, X plus plus. And then inside that you would do a four X equals or Y equals zero, Y less than length, Y plus plus. That's kind of the natural way to do it. But if you actually swap those, then it's uh, much faster on the, like, the computational level. And that's because at that point you're actually iterating through the inner array first. And so rather than um, your pointer slopping back and forth between these two arrays to get the next value, it stays in the same array and it just uh, increments the actual uh, index by one until it gets to the end. So it, it looks a little funky, but uh, it's, you know, 
and it's definitely a micro optimization, but uh, you'll look like it, you know, you know what you're doing in an interview, maybe. Interesting. I need to see a code sample. Well, there's one right there in the show notes. That's, yep, that's, and we'll have it on the website. It's not doing it for me. Yeah, if you're looping through, <laughs> it, it's you know, basically four it's X, basically like y, this. It's backwards. So you know, I know it's hipster backwards. programmers do it backwards. I know it's backwards, but how uh, are you referencing that inner item first? Because you're going through the Y loop, and then inside of that, you're going through the X loop. How's that different than reversing Y and X as variables? That's I guess that's what I'm missing. Because we're talking about multidimensional arrays or arrays of arrays. Right. So if you did the X first, you're saying go to array number zero, oh, okay. then go index I'm number with one. You. Okay, so you're going through the last segment of that multidimensional array, going through all pieces of it before you go to the next item at the top level array. I right, gotcha. otherwise you're swapping an array each time. So it's just gotcha. kind of a, a bigger hop. Okay, I got you. No, that makes perfect sense. Definitely micro, but it's uh, it's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah, I'd really be curious based on like current memory speeds, how much yeah, how of much a problem matters. that is. I feel a JS perf coming on. <laughs> yeah. Oh. You okay. Do it. Well, okay. I'm not doing it. You can do it. Oh. I just oh. say I I'm feel like do this things. is Joe's tip. Like, why am I getting the work here? Well, I always say I'm going to do things and oh. then forget about them conveniently. So. All right. Well, then this one, this next tip is for you then, Alan. <laughs> this is your tip right here. You want, want to pay attention to this one. Uh, so, uh, actually, it was Alan that brought this up. Yep. Or, or that I mentioned it to this. Alan, and Alan said, oh, that's a good tip. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll use that for the show. So, this was my pro tip to Alan was to set a calendar task to remind yourself to change your password. So, if you are in a corporate environment where uh, there's a password policy in place where you have to change your password every so often. And specifically, this is more specific to the actual commands are going to be specific to a Windows uh, you know, domain control, controller environment. Then you can open up your choice of PowerShell or command prompt. We won't talk about it. And issue the command net space user and then your username, your domain username, space forward slash domain. And that will generate a report that'll show you about your user ID. And included in that output will be a little line that says password expires. And it'll have the exact date and timestamp of when your password expires. Now you take that little gem right there and you go over to whatever your calendaring application of choice is and create yourself a task or a reminder for that date and time to change your password and add an alert to that or, or a reminder to that task to uh, for a day or however your choice, however many hours or days ahead of that time that your password is going to expire. That way you have like a little countdown of like if you're in Outlook, for example, and you create a task with a reminder alert you know, a week ahead of time, for example, then you have an exact to the minute, seven day <laughs> advance notice. Hey, your password's going to expire. Yeah. And then you can just choose to like keep hitting the snooze button until the last minute or choose to do it right then or there. Whatever your choice is, you keep getting that reminder until you do it. Yeah, it, it actually is pretty cool. I mean, like you said, you just type in that command and it gives you the second that your password will expire. Yeah, and, and that's your... Um, you know, when I say your username, I'm just talking about the short per 
portion of your username. So you don't have to include the at in your company name or whatever. So um, just you know, whatever your short username is. So like if your you know username that you usually log in with might be John space Doe, right, at examplecompany.com, uh, instead we're talking about just, you know, if the short name for that was just J Doe, then it would be net space user space J Doe space slash domain. Yep. And not the domain you're on, the actual word slash domain. Right. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. The so, actual word domain. Yep. Works perfect. Yep. And you'll learn all kinds of little interesting things about uh, your credentials. Nothing crazy. No, no, no it's not that juicy. All right. You guys don't change your password every day? <laughs> right. Good That would know. definitely be a serious uh, password policy right there. There's actually some philosophies out there that like that having policies to then enforce their employees to change their passwords often isn't necessarily the best way to go. It's not even not necessarily the best. It's usually the worst because then Just it ends up one. being, you know, my name 2015, my well, name zero one zero two zero three some of some of the the reports out there were were suggesting that or some of some of that philosophy was based off of reports that suggested that it encourages people to um write down their password you know or store save their password underneath their keyboard like really bad habits like that and that instead it would be a far better environment if you just encouraged high entropy passwords yep uh super long passwords or passphrases really and uh you know maybe be more event driven with your policy rather than uh you know forcing people to remember something new every 90 days because then that's where your um username one two three comes in yep or whatever you said i i don't remember it's it's all it's all based off numbering so so but yeah, so that's uh, that's episode 35. I hope you've enjoyed listening to chapters 7, 8, and 9 of the 12-factor app, um, port binding, concurrency, and disposability. And uh, as I mentioned before, be sure to check out episodes 32 and 33 if you haven't already listened to our uh, takes on the first half of the 12-factor app. And... As always, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. We really do appreciate those reviews. Um, so, you know, you can go to www.codingblocks.net slash review and find links to quickly get you over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave a review there. Yep. Contact us with any questions or topics. Like, we seriously love getting those. We love answering them. And hopefully it helps you and anybody else out who's listening. And visit us at codingblocks.net. You can find all our show notes, our examples, discussions, and more. This particular episode will be www.codingblocks.slash episode 35. That's right. And uh, send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. And we're also on Facebook and Google Plus and Pinterest. And LinkedIn and yeah. We're and we will totally endorse you if you friend us on LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, my God. You're here, still doing that? Here we go again. Uh, yep. <laughs> Joe will endorse you. It's my little uh, LinkedIn Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, that was awesome. All right. So we will be back and talk to you soon.